I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... Dr. Gavin Francis returns to Little Atoms to talk about his new book, Adventures in Human Being. Gavin Francis is a GP and the author of True North, Travels in Arctic Europe, An Empire Antarctica, Ice, Silent and Emperor Penguins, which you may remember we talked about in the previous Little Atoms, and which won the Scottish Book of the Year Award and was shortlisted for the Ondati and Costa Prizes. He contributes to the London Review of Books, The Guardian and the New York Review of Books, and lives in Edinburgh. And we're going to be talking about Gavin's new book today, which is Adventures in Human Being. So Gavin, welcome back. Thank you, Neil, for having me back. It was a great pleasure the last time. Those previous two books were travel books. We can perhaps generally call this one a travel book as well. Tell us what the idea behind it is. Well, as you know, I'm a doctor. Um, I used in the past my medical training to, to travel. I used it very much as a trade, as a skill that would get me work wherever I wanted to go. And um, when I've written travel books in the past, I have adopted the, the perspective of, of visiting a place and looking at it from alternative perspectives. So looking at a cultural perspective, a historical perspective, a contemporary narrative perspective about me travelling through it. As a boy, I didn't particularly want to be a doctor. I wanted initially to be a geographer, and mm-hmm. I was very obsessed with landscapes and with mapping those landscapes. And I suppose, in a sense, this book for me is a return to that original impulse, because in my teens, my passion for maps changed into a passion for atlases of anatomy, essentially. And this book uses the same techniques as a travel book. It moves through the body, imagining the body as a landscape, but examining it from just those sorts of perspectives, I would approach whether I was travelling through the Himalayas or through the Arctic or even meditating on the Antarctic. So looking at each part of the body from a clinical perspective, a contemporary perspective, cultural, literary, philosophical, and so on. And, well, we'll go through various chapters of the book. The book starts off at the head and ends up at the bottom of the body, Mm. uh, at the feet, and we'll take a, a sort of similar path and look at some of those areas... I think one of the reasons it's enabled you to look so closely at so many places is you've had a, an amazingly varied career so far. Despite not wanting to be in medicine when you were young, how did you end up in medicine? Um, I think I, as I said, I had this great love for maps. And I loved the way that atlases 
take this sort of inconceivable complexity of the world, the landscape around us, and they they distill it to something um, something comprehensible, something that is possible when leafing through the pages of it, something that you can master. And in my teens, somebody gave me an atlas of anatomy, and I just became utterly enthralled by it. I was good at biology, I was good at sciences at school, and I, I come from a background in which it's a very strong... It wasn't a directive, but there was just a very strong environmental background advice, I suppose, to get yourself a trade, get yourself a skill. The only thing that you've got to sell is your labour, my dad would say. And so I was good at science, I loved that, and, um, and medicine just seemed like a wonderful opportunity to combine all these passions and enthusiasms of mine and also get myself a trade, a trade that I could sell my skills anywhere in the world I wanted to travel. And, I mean, obviously there's the travel, you wanted to go off and travel and use it, but also mm-hmm. why so peripatetic in the career? I mean, some people, you, you know, you trained as a neurosurgeon at one point. A lot of people would remain a neurosurgeon for the, um, for the uh, rest of their career. I, um, I took a year out of medical school halfway through. I joined an honours class in neuroscience, and I took an honours degree in neuroscience as an aside, really, from medical school, and then I went back into medical school. And then... When I qualified in medicine, I did my, under the old system, my year of house jobs where you did one year very, very, you know, 100 hours a week. Mm -hmm. And then I did it in a very busy district general hospital, so a lot of variety. And after that, I thought I wanted to do emergency medicine. I loved emergency medicine because it just fulfilled so many different examples of what being a good doctor can be, responding to people in need and of sometimes extreme dire Mm -hmm. um, need but also those patients are very unfiltered and extreme. And um, after a while, I, although I love the generalism of that and the fact that people could present any problem to me at all and I would have to think some way about how to handle it, I began to explore other kinds of specialties. I did, um, I did six months of neurosurgery, but it wasn't particularly for me. I did some orthopaedics, I did um, some obstetrics and gynaecology, And then I did some expedition medicine. As you know, I went to Antarctica for a year and a half. And all those sorts of jobs essentially prepared me in lots of different directions. But I always come back to the individual patient and being able to being able to address any kind of problem that people bring to me. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately that's why I've ended up, I think, in general practice. Because it's the most um, extraordinary privilege to be able to sit there and meet people from all walks of life totally unfiltered, no preference for who has power or money. Everybody is classified according to their needs and be able to to help people in almost any, with whatever medical problem they bring to me. And that, I mean, that's such a contrast with, you mentioned there's a year straight out of medical school sort of thing as the, you know, as the house person, as Mm. as the, um, there are not many, I don't know, a short list of, of trades, airline pilot perhaps or something, certainly doctor, who I would not want anywhere near around me having been up for 56 hours, to be mm. honest. I mean, it's, it's such a intense training, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, they, and now it's not allowed. I mean, when I, when I qualified, I did these uh, house jobs where I, at one point I, had, I did a job for orthopaedics where 
I'd start my shift at 8 in the morning on a Saturday and I didn't get away home until lunchtime on Monday and I was on call for that entire period of time. And they don't allow that anymore and I think that's a good thing. Um, yeah, but it does mean that consequently we need more doctors mm-hmm. and that training is going to take longer. Mm-hmm. And that's been the problem, I think, with hospital planners and specialty planners is they haven't factored that in. That if we give people humane working hours, it might just take a bit longer to train mm-hmm. them up. So how much... This is a sort of theme that cropped up in the book, but I want to talk about it in general terms as well, first of all. How much of the of the body is still a foreign country? I think an enormous amount of illness we don't understand at all, a huge amount of it, um, and it varies from specialty to specialty. So, for example, um, I think we're very good now at cardiology. We're very good at lots and lots of different surgical specialties. Mm-hmm. We're getting much better at endocrinology hormones. I think... Neurology is an example where we talk about um, there's still an enormous amount that's unknown um, and many neurological conditions are still a complete mystery Mm -hmm. to us. Immunological conditions, so all those conditions where your body begins to attack itself, things like ulcerative colitis, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, multiple sclerosis, all these kinds of conditions where your own immune system is implicated, we have very little understanding and our treatments are still really quite rudimentary. Um, they just involve a kind of generalised suppression of the immune system. So, yes, we are very good now at knowing how the different parts of the body fit together, but when they fail, we still have an enormous distance to go. And that, of course, means that it's also... I mean, if we're talking about it, you know, medicine is obviously also science. It means there's so much more to discover as well. And again, you do... We'll, we'll get to them as we go along, but, you know, various points in this book, you talk about people just, you know, mm-hmm. coming up with sort of revolutionary treatments for things and... Mm-hmm. and yeah. Sometimes very simple ones. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> That's certainly what we're going to talk about. Um, so let's dive into, the, uh, dive into the areas of the mm-hmm. body then, and we'll start with the head and more specifically the brain. So, well, I just want you to tell us about your first encounter with a brain. Yeah, I mean, my, my first encounter really with the brain, when I was in first year of medical school, so I was 18 years old uh, in Edinburgh, and that year we learned just three subjects. We learned anatomy, biochemistry and physiology. But the anatomy was the kind of gross anatomy of the body, and the brain remained kind of inside the skull. We didn't saw open the skull and get it out. Mm-hmm. Um, we just did the rest of the body. And then in second year, so the first week of second year was when we began neuroanatomy. So I was probably 19 the first time I held a human brain in my hands. And that anatomy class was, you know, there was maybe um, 80 of us in a big room with 40 brains in buckets because uh, we double up two to a brain. And yeah, it was the most extraordinary privilege to, to be led on a journey essentially through the brain. You know, the, our lecturers would, would help show us how to, how to cut it up, how to cut one up and... Um, and, and learn about the ventricles of the brain, the chambers within it, and learn about the different bundles of white matter and the, the areas of the grey matter and what they do. And, you know, it was just... Uh, I mentioned the word privilege, but these brains had all been essentially donated by people who wanted to help doctors learn. And, um, and thinking of the, the experiences the, and the memories that are somehow had once been encoded in those patterns of mm-hmm. neurons and the fact that we still have so little understanding of that. Was was a, a, a wonderful, very privileged position to be in. I interviewed the neurosurgeon Henry Marsh mm. a, a few weeks ago, and the thing that struck me most from that interview was he said a thing that 
you know, with so much other surgery, like you open someone's chest up, you stick your hands in, you know, you can get your hands in, you can feel around, and obviously you can't do that mm. with the brain. Not only do we not know a lot about it, but it's so difficult <laughs> to sort of operate on anyway. Yeah, it's so delicate and so soft, and, um, you know, that, yeah, his book, Do No Harm, is a very beautiful book, um, very honest, frank book, too, about the problems of neurosurgery. Mm-hmm. Um, what really struck me in neurosurgery in my very brief um, experience of being a junior there, very much a junior, you know, the bottom of the medical hierarchy, was the fact that, yeah, we, we still understand so little about these very, very minute subtleties of neuronal function. And we're still operating at the level of um, quite big, big changes. So pressure changes in the brain, swelling of the brain, clots on the brain, big tumours on the brain. They're starting to make inroads into things like um, um, the implanted nerve stimulators and things mm-hmm. to try and, um, and combat specific conditions but we're, that's, that's still all very much in its infancy. I'm Hannah Fry, you're listening to Resonance FM and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. In the book you talk about a, an operation on a woman with epilepsy mm. and as is so often the case in, in operations of the brain um, still never really ceases to amaze me when I hear it. She's, she's awake throughout yeah. the procedure. Tell us about that operation. Yeah, it's, um, it's a procedure whereby actually your brain, the brain tissue itself is not sensitive. So you can touch a brain and you can't feel it. So it has no nerve endings mm-hmm. as such as, as we would describe it. So if somebody's skull is opened and a window is cut through the skull, you can operate on the brain without anaesthetic. Mm-hmm. And a few decades ago, this was realised. And um, you obviously, of course, if you cut open somebody's skull, you have to anaesthetise the raw ends of the skull because they do feel pain. <laughs> but if you do that, it's perfectly possible to wake the patient up. Mm-hmm. And so um, the reason you would do that is because there are areas of the brain which are absolutely essential in the generation of speech. Mm-hmm. And if you damage those areas then you can render a patient mm-hmm. mute. And the only way to be sure you're not damaging those areas is to wake the individual up while you're operating on them and have them speak while you operate. OK, because we really don't know where they are, do we? You are, I mean, you do know where they are, but you're sort of doing it by... Yeah, by, and it looks by exactly touch. the same. The tissue yeah. looks exactly the same. And so most people have it in a particular area, just on the left side, kind of above and in front of it above and in front of their left ear. Mm-hmm. Most people, you know, I forget the figures, it's around 80-odd percent of people have it there. But you still need to delineate it in each person, and there's a substantial proportion of people where it's not there, it's somewhere else. And so, um, yeah, it's a, it was a wonderful um, innovation when somebody realised that you could do this. We're, t- we're talking about somebody with epilepsy, and again, you talk in the book about the, the history mm. of how it's a condition that throughout history has been thought somehow divine, or, you know, the touch mm. of God on people that had seizures. You then, you spend time in a psychiatric hospital as well, um, and there's a passage where you talk about the, you know, the, the invention and the use of ECT, which is, you know, remains an incredibly... Controversial and mm. seemingly rather unpleasant treatment. Mm. Um, I was—I had no idea until I read it in the book that it was basically invented in sort of Mussolini's Italy. Yeah, it was invented in the 30s in Rome because at that time shock therapy was coming was coming into vogue across 
Europe, but they used drugs to involve mm-hmm. the shock. And uh, the drugs were very unpleasant. They were usually by intramuscular injection. They caused a lot of pain. They also caused a lot of distress and agitation before the shock came on. And um, these psychiatrists working in Rome started to experiment. Initially, they experimented on dogs. And then they figured out the right kind of way to do it in a dog. And then they, um, this was, you know, fascist Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, they just experimented on a, a, a man who had been picked up in the, the big railway station in Rome babbling nonsense. Um, so it was extraordinarily unethical, the roots of it. And then, of course, we know the, 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 the subsequent history of ECT in the sense that it went through a long period in the 50s, 60s and 70s of where that kind of unethical usage of it continued mm-hmm. and it's, um, it was used in all sorts of conditions that subsequently been shown to be useless for, um, which is a great shame because um, there are still some people who benefit from ECT undoubtedly if it's given in the correct way with anaesthetics. And, but, the, but that group of people that have been shown to benefit from it is really very small. And, and what does it actually do? What, what is the purpose of it? What it does is it applies a voltage. Um, the, the Roman psychiatrists used um, about 110 volts. They found that was enough to both temples. Now when it's used, psychiatrists who use it now, they will anaesthetise the patient first so they're completely unconscious when this happens. And that electricity passing through the frontal lobes of the brain triggers an epileptic seizure, which is essentially uncontrolled electrical activity, uncontrolled um, chaotic electrical firing of neurons. Mm-hmm. So they, they provoke that, and then a seizure happens, a seizure which usually lasts about 20 or 30 seconds, a, a grand mal convulsion, um, if you've ever seen someone who's experiencing one of those. And then afterwards the brain terminates the seizure itself using its own neuronal networks, which dampen seizures. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the brain itself has a lot of protective mechanisms against this sort of thing. And nobody's really been able to fully identify why in some cases of people who have really very profound, severe psychotic depression, it seems to help them. Mm-hmm. But there have been an awful lot of studies that have looked into it and have looked at the fact that over a course of ECT, the kinds of neurons in your brain which uh, dampen seizures, increase, you know, the neurochemical terms, upregulate. So they upregulate all these neurotransmitters which uh, terminate seizures. So it looks as if the brain is modifying itself to prevent seizures. And what effect that might have on somebody's mental state, nobody Mm -hmm. knows. Which is why it's it's still only used in in a very small proportion of people. And often there's a lot of psychiatrists who... um, we would only use it in situations that they consider life-threatening. So, for example, a, an individual who's suffering from such profound, severe psychotic depression that they won't—they're they're almost catatonic. They won't interact with the world. They won't eat. They won't drink. They won't—and they are fading away. They are dying because they are starving. In those instances, it has been shown to help bring someone back into a state where they're able to communicate. And there's an example of that. Yeah, patient in there's the an example of that that I describe in the book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. ECT is so controversial, and I think it's controversial with good reason. And there are a lot of people who feel that they've been damaged by their experience of ECT. There's people who 
who feel that their, their brain function, their cognitive function has never really recovered. And I think it's right that we, consider, we continue to think of it as a very controversial treatment. It's certainly not any kind of panacea, and it should only be given in particular instances under the very close supervision of a psychiatrist. But in Scotland, there's a last five years, they've started up this wonderful thing called the Scottish ECT Accreditation Network that's got a website, and it puts it audits and assesses the use of ECT in every single psychiatric unit in Scotland every year and makes all its data publicly available. So anyone can Google that and see exactly how many people in Scotland are having ECT and what their outcomes are like. So I think um, that is an openness that many medical specialties would do well to emulate. to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. I'm talking to Gavin Francis and we're talking about his book Adventures in Human Being. And Gavin, we'll start off this next part staying with the head for a little bit, particularly the face. There's a chapter in the book about the face and you look at, there's a woman that comes into your to your treatment with uh, Bell's palsy. And I wanted to talk about Charles Bell, the, the coiner mm. of, that, of that particular malady, particularly in the context of um, you mentioned that this book looks at not just the medical world, but also the cultural aspect and artistic aspects of it as well. And in this in this chapter, you talk about Leonardo da Vinci, someone who's you know famous for his incredible anatomical mm-hmm. drawings. Mm-hmm. He was constantly trying to track people down in the street to draw their faces. He would follow people with unusual, and ugly faces to mm. to draw. And um, and again, something that I didn't realise until reading this book was how he he basically used his painting The Last Supper to give everybody a different sort of expression to mm. explore this. I was interested since first year of medical school in facial expression because it was very apparent to me as I began to learn about the muscles that give expression to our faces that when you're dissecting people in the dissection room you can see differences between the development of individual muscles so people that had very particularly smiley happy lives have great big thick smiling muscles people uh, sometimes you find they've got very well developed frowning muscles and uh, those muscles of the forehead that give people a little kind of tension line between their eyebrows you know you would find those ones beefed up and I was very interested in this idea that um not only can you see the effects of somebody's habitual emotional state on their faces, but also that our habitual expressions can change the way we feel. Hmm. And that's something that um, Da Vinci very much brought out in his own work. Da Vinci believed that very much, and you can see it in his notes of his anatomical folios. Uh, Bell 
didn't explore that aspect so much, but Bell was a, a surgeon anatomist of um, from Edinburgh in the late 18th century, but then he, he came down to London and he was a war surgeon at Waterloo mm-hmm. and he was heavily involved in um, both practice in London and in, in, in dealing with the soldiers. And he, from a very young age, was fascinated by painting and, and he, he had a tutor that taught him the finest kind of classical and Renaissance masters. And, and he wrote this beautiful book about how to express emotion through painting mm-hmm. based and backed by a very thorough anatomical knowledge and then the last link in this particular chain is, is Darwin and Charles Darwin 50 or 60 years after Bell picked up where Bell had left off and he made that final assertion really that your face, how you hold your face, how you express yourself will actually change the way you feel. And, um, and it's something that's borne out by modern psychological research too. Darwin has this beautiful way of putting it. He says, he, says, he who gives way to violent gestures will increase his rage. He does, who does not control the signs of fear will experience fear in greater degree. And um, yeah, I think that's very true. So when I'm sitting in clinic, I'm trying to be very conscious of my facial expressions. Mm-hmm. Try to make, even if I'm running 20 minutes late and I've got angry people in the waiting room, I try not to show impatience or irritation. And with respect to Bell's palsy, I think it's an interesting idea, Bell's palsy or even Parkinson's disease, when people lose the ability to express their emotions mm-hmm. adequately, does that affect the way they experience those emotions? The woman you treat in this book comes into you with that, that one side of her face paralysed, um, and you're confident that, I mean, this is a thing that will go. It's something mm-hmm. that will, will sort of dissipate. In, in most people it does. Bill's palsy just recovers itself. Mm-hmm. But in this case it doesn't. Mm. We were just talking about Heavy Marsh again. and It was a catalogue of, um, you know, things that go wrong or that don't work in, in the medical world. This is really one of the few times in this book where something happens that basically you, you, there's just nothing you can do about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, if we're honest, if doctors are honest, then there's an enormous number of those situations mm-hmm. where all we can do is um, kind of ameliorate symptoms rather than treat causes. And the treatment for Bell's palsy, there was a big randomised controlled trial done in Edinburgh a couple of few years back and, and eventually came out that the best treatment is to give steroids um, for a few days around the, the onset of the palsy. And that's because it's thought that that perhaps the nerve is being squeezed by some inflammation as it comes out of a very narrow tunnel in the skull. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's been shown to help recovery rates through some steroid tablets. But it's a very um, unspecific treatment, if you like. And, uh, yeah, I, I'm still hopeful that somebody will come up with a better one in the years to come. One final thing in the, the head area... You mentioned earlier, briefly alluded to an incredibly simple treatment that's that's recently been discovered. In the chapter on the inner ear, you talk about vertigo, this idea, you know, the idea of suffering a, a sort of disjuncture between the messages of your, you know, your, mm. your ear, your inner ear, and your and your visual messages, and absolutely terrible, distressing thing to suffer. Mm. Tell us about this ridiculously simple. <laughs> well, yeah. because you actually call it voodoo medicine yeah. in this book. Somebody, yeah, some one of my patients said it was like voodoo. This is an example of a, a condition which has been known and written about for three thousand years. You know, and you know, if you go into the ancient Greek texts, and Theophrastus talks about it, Hippocrates talks about it. 
Nobody knew how to approach episodic, severe, incapacitating vertigo, which is, in medical terms, vertigo is this sudden sense that the room is spinning or the world is spinning, even though you're not, even though you're just sitting there. And it's because your balance organ starts, for whatever reason, to tell your brain that you're moving, even when you're not. And um, because your eyes are telling your brain that you're not moving, but your ear says you are, you become very, very sick. It's just like seasickness. Mm -hmm. It's seasickness on dry land. And um, it was thought, until the 80s, it was thought that it was because of an actual sort of structural problem within the inner ear. And nobody really knew how to treat that. And so what they used to do is they they used to um, repeat a movement that would bring the symptoms on hundreds of times in an attempt to just convince your brain to stop listening to that aberrant signal. Mm And if that didn't work, they would sometimes even do quite big operations. They would open up your skull and sever the nerve, which risked deafness and risked lots of problems. Mm -hmm. And then in the 80s, this um, very original thinker of an ENT surgeon working in Oregon in the States uh, thought he developed a different theory. He thought perhaps it's actually caused by just little grains of sludge or chalk, chalky material sloshing around in these um, canals that, that give our balance. And so what he did was, working in his own garage, he developed a model of the inner ear out of um, bits of hosepipe, and he worked out a sequence of movements, essentially a sequence of rotations through various angles that would would move the sludge out of the troublesome part, the sensitive part of the, the ear canal, and into another part. And it worked. So he could cure these episodes of, of vertigo just by doing a sequence of movements mm-hmm. by a patient on his examining couch. You know, it's one of these wonderful stories that that is now within, I mean it took 10 years or so but that is now filtered out into the, the world and you don't need to go and see an ENT surgeon to do it, I can do it. It's called an Epley manoeuvre. Yeah, and you've done it. You've yeah, done yeah, it. I do it. Whenever I have patients that, and I, I should say One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a It's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
Okay, that not every kind of vertigo responds to this. It's only a specific kind of vertigo called benign positional paroxysmal vertigo. But um, that kind of vertigo, when people have it, the spinning comes on with certain head movements. And that's the kind that almost um, the, the has a good response rate to doing these um, manoeuvres, these Epley manoeuvres. I'm Caitlin Doty. Check out the growing Little Adams media empire at littleadams.com. I want to spend the rest of this part talking about the chest and abdomen and lungs to begin with. Now, I, I have asthma. I've developed asthma in the last few years. And, uh, mm-hmm. So I know the... Uh, <laughs> The joy of being able to breathe, that moment after I've had an asthma attack when suddenly you really appreciate just the mm. simple ability to be able to breathe. You start this chapter off, tell us actually this story, you start this chapter off having been called to, to basically pronounce death on a, on a man that's thrown himself off a bridge. Mm. When I were one of the emergency medicine departments I used to work in... Um, it was one of the tasks that we would do if um, if the ambulance crew were called to an emergency or to call to somebody who was dead at the scene. They would then bring the body to the A&E department and instead of arriving at the front door with flashing blue lights and so on, they would go round the back and we would get a sort of discreet knock on the door to have us go out and just certify the body, just paperwork, certify the body so they could be taken to the mortuary. And... Um, yeah, it's a very obviously it's quite a horrible task. Even if um, even if you're trained in medicine and um, you've developed that sort of you you try to develop a kind of insensitivity, as opposed to tasks like that. But this case starts out with a chap, a very unfortunate individual who had um, jumped off a bridge onto the road below, and um, as I was certifying him dead, so as I was listening to his heart and feeling his pulse, I realised that air had tracked out under his skin that actually the impact must have burst his lungs. And the reason the chapter starts with that is because the chapter aims to explore these ideas that, that our lungs are really quite extraordinary organs. Mm-hmm. They're, they're there to hold air within, a, within a, a structure, within a bodily structure that normally shouldn't have any air. When air gets into the wrong compartments of your body, it causes all sorts of problems. And the ancient Greek idea was that air carried an invisible spirit that had to be drawn into our lungs and then mixed up with blood within the chambers of the heart. And, um, you know, Vedic medicine has the same idea. Chinese medicine has the same idea. So air is this sort of spirit energy. And it's true in a sense. You know, oxygen is the spirit energy in the air that, that helps keep us alive. So... It moves on from that rather morbid opening of the chapter onto exploring these ideas of how the lungs are these the lightest organs in the body, that they're composed of air, that they, they work essentially like leaves, mm-hmm. in that leaves draw in carbon dioxide and emanate oxygen, and our lungs do the opposite. They, they draw in oxygen and emanate carbon dioxide. You alluded there to this idea of you know listening, Mm. Um, also, in the next chapter, though, I want to touch on about the heart as well. I mean, we you know we live in a world now where there's there's you know MRI scans and like you know amazing technology, but still so much you rely on just being able to listen yeah. using a stethoscope. And this is obviously something you have to learn, right? Mm. You talk in the, in the book about methods of, of yeah. tapping on a on a telephone directory with a coin underneath it or something. Yeah. Trying, trying to learn, hear the, the, the slight acoustic difference. 
and we'll go yeah we'll go on to the, the heart as well you talk about you know various different sounds what tell us what a what's a seagull murmur it's got such a great name yeah a seagull murmur is a kind of um very high-pitched murmur which is a sound generated within the heart by turbulent blood flow and it's uh, the blood the, the blood as it moves through the chambers of the heart if the heart is entirely healthy and the valves are entirely healthy you don't really hear the sound of the blood you hear just the closure of the valves mm-hmm. so you hear that sort of classically famous that sort of lup dup 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 and that's just the valves closing when you start to hear a kind of whooshing noise that's turbulent mm-hmm. and then the the whooshing noises that you can get are, it seems, legion, you know, so I used to, when I was a student, I would study murmurs by having, a, I had a CD of them, and I would play them when I was studying, there's all sorts, you know, there's aortic, and um, if the aortic valve's too tight, you get one kind of murmur, if it's, if it lets blood back flow through it, you get a different kind of murmur, and then there's four valves, of course, and they've all got different sounds, and so we, we used to be trained to listen very closely to the subtleties of this turbulent flow, and mm-hmm. um, a seagull murmur is a particularly high-pitched example of a, a, a tight aortic valve, which sounds a bit like a seagull's cry. So that's a seagull murmur. The other thing I wanted to, I've never come across before in this chapter, is this, this concept of um, people suffering from something called pump head. Mm. Tell me what that is, how that occurs. Yeah, this, this chapter meditates really on a very beautiful poem by the poet Robin Robertson yeah it's an absolutely stunning poem yeah and Robin Robertson describes in one of his poems how he had his aortic valve replaced Mm -hmm. Um, and during that period of time when he was under anaesthetic because his heart had been stopped in order to change a valve over um, his blood was circulated in a machine, in a bypass machine and he experienced a syndrome on coming around afterwards um, that up to a third of people who've been on cardiac bypass experience called pump head and pump head pump because you've been on a cardiac bypass pump and head because it seems to affect your thought the coherence of mm-hmm. your thought people often wake up disorientated disinhibited sometimes their mood is very low and can take a long time to recover from and as I say, it's not everybody who experiences this, but but it, it remains a bit of a mystery. Yeah, why I was going to say, why do we think it happens? Yeah, some people think it's to do with um, as the aorta is cut open for the bypass machine to be plumbed in. Um, some people think it releases small fatty particles that go off into your brain capillaries, um, which disturbs your brain function. Some people think it's to do with the air bubbles from mm-hmm. the machine. Some people think it's to do with the fact that the brain is set up to experience its blood in a very pulsatile way. Yeah. And um, a lot of these machines, even the most advanced ones, are very poor at mimicking the pressure pulse of a normal beating heart. And so the jury remains out. Um, And that particular chapter explores this idea that we all know the pulse is the fundamental characteristic of life. If someone collapses, the first thing you do is check their pulse. But is it perhaps more fundamental than that? And actually, Mm. our sense of selves and the coherence of our thought is dependent on pulsatile flow through the brain, and you do you do mention the the, the possibility of sort of future artificial hearts that mm. wouldn't have that sort of pulse, and mm-hmm. perhaps that's not something we would want. Yeah, because they, there have been some studies. I mean, the, the new studies coming out all the time on this field by intensive care and cardiac surgeons. Um, some have shown that if you take a bypass machine which attempts to mimic a pressure pulse of a beating heart, you get less pump head afterwards. And so 
as, a, as somebody designing um, biomechanics, somebody designing a pump, it's a lot easier to design a pump which, which pumps smoothly than it is to design a pump which pumps in a pulsatile manner. Mm-hmm. And so the, these uh, engineers are, are taking this idea on board and, and exploring how you would possibly go about preparing an artificial heart which could beat rather than just drive fluid. And, and before we move on, I'm just going to say again, people should Google Robin Robertson's amazing poem, The Harvey. Or in fact, buy this book, that's what you should do. Because you should Robin, do that anyway. Robin Robertson very graciously permitted me to reproduce that poem in the book. So yeah, you can see it in there. Just to finish off with the, uh, the abdomen then, the kidneys. It's a really simple piece of anatomy. It does something quite simple and it's quite basic in its construction and therefore was the obvious choice for the first transplant. But actually, again, it's still also a mystery how it works. You have to point, I mean, the kidney looks, it's ostensibly very simple in Mm. that there is one artery going in, there's one vein coming out, and there's one outflow for urine, the ureter. And so, you know, going right back to the classical Greeks again, they thought, well, it's very straightforward. it strains urine out of the blood, that's what it must do, because um, they could recognise that there was blood going in and there was urine coming out. But when you get down, so it's ostensibly simple, but when you get down to the microscopic level of how it actually does that, it's fiendishly complicated in terms of how it knows exactly what substances to let out into Mm -hmm. the urine and what substances to reabsorb. And there's, again, we we touched briefly earlier on, on... autoimmune conditions, immunological conditions, when your own immune system begins to attack your own body mm-hmm. and, um, and the kidney has so many of those that affect it that aren't fully understood. So yeah, it looks simple but it's not really that simple. And I think of all of the amazing stuff that's in this book, facts and things that I learned and I didn't know previously, the one that stunned me the most is quite a simple thing. But it's just a bit that never occurred to me. If you have a kidney transplant, if you have a new kidney, you don't necessarily have to replace one of your old kidneys. You basically just stick in a third kidney. That's right, yeah. <laughs> There's no need to take out the old kidneys. Because, you know, why would you? They don't work. So um, it would be quite a big operation. It would make a big hole to take them out. Mm-hmm. So actually, most of the time when someone receives a kidney transplant, it's put down into what's called the iliac fossa, just above your hip bone, Mm -hmm. because there are large blood vessels there that it's quite easy to plumb the new kidney into. It's close to the bladder for the ureter, and um, and it's quite a straightforward operation to go in in the front. Whereas to take somebody's old kidneys out, you need to open up the back and go through a lot of muscles and and so on. So, yeah, you don't need to take them out. They just sit there doing nothing if they're not working properly.
You're listening to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny, and today I'm talking to Dr Gavin Francis, and we're talking about his book, Adventures in Human Being. And making babies, uh, fertility, um, there's, a, there's a chapter where you, you basically, uh, you're basically you're consulting a, um, a young couple who are having trouble conceiving and are taking the first steps into, into IVF treatment. Again, this is, it seems like quite late on that we've understood fertility and mm. ovulation. Yeah. Um, I mean, we obviously knew where babies came from a long time ago, yeah. but we didn't know. We still thought that women went into periods of heat in the way that animals did, like ridiculously late, didn't we? Mm. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's if you look into the the history of human or Western understanding, in particular fertility, um, back to the ancient Greeks, you know, it was thought that. Conception required heat Mm -hmm. and sex. Having sex was about generating heat. And so what you had to do, it was kind of, they had this very rudimentary understanding about like rubbing two sticks, you know. You had to generate a sufficient amount of heat. And once the sufficient amount of heat was generated in the pelvis, bang, you would both create this seed. And Mm -hmm. um, and for that reason, it was thought very much that female orgasm was essential. Female orgasm was essentially ovulation. Mm -hmm. Um, for that ancient Greek kind of perspective. And that belief persisted until the late 18th century. It wasn't until actually the early 19th century that some German physiologists worked out that dogs, they were doing work on dogs, they realised that um, dogs ovulated whether they had intercourse or not. And so that wasn't until the 1840s. And then, so that very rapidly spread into uh, the evolving mid-19th century understanding of human medicine and at that point and then for a long time it was thought that okay right so humans we humans also ovulate cyclically like dogs but it was thought then for a long time that women ovulated during their period and that belief persisted from the mid-19th century right up to the 1920s 1930s even and it's interesting to look back so so the 18th century there was the belief very strongly that orgasm was necessary for ovulation, so um, female sexuality was very much uh, part of human culture. It was like, expected that both partners had to enjoy having intercourse or you wouldn't have any babies, but there was a negative side to that too. So, for example, in the 18th century, judges would, um, would decide that if somebody became pregnant through rape, then intercourse must have been consensual mm-hmm. because it was believed that you had to have orgasm for ovulation. So that was the negative side of it. And then, so this realisation in the mid-19th century that that, um, ovulation occurred cyclically fed into this kind of Victorian prudishness about female sexuality, which I think, you know, for the subsequent 80 years, there was this kind of Western idea that sexual pleasure wasn't necessary, so why bother with it? Mm -hmm. It was the idea, I suppose, behind uh, ovulation. And then in the 30s and 40s, it began to be realised that, no, that was all wrong. It wasn't until the 70s that we actually realised how ovulation and the control of ovulation works, how it's sort of controlled from the pituitary gland in the brain, Mm -hmm. and how being stressed and um, being under pressures from different kind of directions can upset your ovulation pattern. Um, It wasn't really understood the whole business of um, implantation into the the womb. So, yeah, what this chapter does is it explores these ideas and asks, since we have mapped out and figured out different ways, the different barriers to conception, is there still something that we don't understand about it? Which is undoubtedly true. There's a lot we don't understand about um, infertility and fertility. And also it tries to explore 
did the they essentially sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater when they decided that um, the, the 18th century idea that women ovulated in response to having um, an orgasm was there any still any mileage in that? The role of orgasms is still something that's that's a bit of a mystery, but it's almost come full circle in that people do now think that they might have something to do with. Yeah, they think there's some there's there's various sexologists that publish research on this. There's even one group that that I read a paper about that, that believes that it has a role in preferring. <laughs> it's quite indelicate, I'm afraid. It has a role in preferring sperm from a non-regular partner over that of a regular partner. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how much how much you can put credence in that idea, but. Um, that's what one particular school of researchers that I referenced in the book uh, came to the conclusion of, that female sexual pleasure is about um, preferring irregular partners in a relationship of infidelities, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I want to spend some time looking at the chapter. There's a chapter on the, the large bowel and the rectum. And actually, I, I want to get you to, to read a bit of the book, so I think that might be a perfect time for you to, uh, okay. to share some of the book with us. Well... What I tried to say in this chapter about the large bowel is obviously there's all sorts of reasons why doctors need to know about your um, bowel habits because sometimes you know getting constipated can show you can be a sign of, of deeper problems diarrhea can be a sign of, sign of deeper problems but also we're trained from this very young age to think of feces of course as sort of dirty and disgusting which is a good thing you know because they do spread diseases however in medical practice. I don't think of it as disgusting if I have to examine somebody's back passage. You know, it's just something I have to do. I'm a doctor and they might have a problem with it. So this chapter looks at that and it looks at images and x-ray images and how they can actually be beautiful no matter what they are of. The chapter, I should say, is called A Magnificent Work of Art. Humans could be described as tube-like animals, our skeletons and organs as elaborations to support a length of gut. From that perspective, we're not all that different from nematode worms, primitive organisms that exist primarily to ingest and excrete. Food goes in one end, faeces out of the other, nutrients and water are extracted. In nematodes, it takes just a fraction of a millimetre to accomplish. But in us, it's between 20 and 30 feet. Bowels are forced into loops and spirals in order to fit in the space they're allocated. They squirm and twist constantly as they squeeze food and faeces along. The rectum is the terminus of that tube, and it isn't free to move around. Its name comes from the Latin meaning straight. As the bowel jinks its way out of the sigmoid colon, it makes a straight run through the pelvis for the exit. In terms of function, the rectum is really just a waiting room, a place for faeces to accumulate until it's convenient to let it out. Bowel habit comes to most of us as a birthright, morning or evening, regular or irregular, loose or firm, We grow accustomed to the way waste exits and alarmed if its pattern begins to change. For the most part, that's with good reason. Doctors are interested in changes to bowel habit because they can signal deeper disturbance. Diarrhea can be a sign of thyroid disease, constipation a warning of malignancy, and oily floating faeces suggests that your pancreas is packed in. Just as a great deal of information can be revealed about someone's state of health from asking about how often they open their bowels. There's a lot to be gleaned from checking the inside of the rectum itself. In men, it's the main way of examining the prostate, which can be felt by a gloved finger through the thin anterior wall. 
In women, the cervix lies in about the same place. And in some women, particularly if they've never had sex, it's more acceptable to check the cervix rectally rather than vaginally. If someone is passing blood, an examination is necessary to find out if the blood is coming from hemorrhoids, from a tear in the anal skin, or from a tumour. I've found several rectal cancers this way. The medical school aphorism goes, if you don't put your finger in it, you'll put your foot in it. Stand-up comedians might suggest that to have your large bowel inspected, you should drop your trousers and bend over, but the best way is actually to lie on your side, up on a couch, and draw your knees towards your chest. It's always surprising how many people apologise or make an embarrassed joke as they get into this position. I hope you haven't just had breakfast, or I'm so sorry that you have to do this. As if the rectum is so sordid that as the examiner I might feel repulsed. But it's understandable belief. Of course, we're taught from our earliest years that faeces are untouchable and that the rectum and the anus are dirty. For most doctors, disgust at suppurating wounds, prolapsed bowels or gangrenous limbs is beside the point. They have to be examined so their aesthetics are irrelevant. But though ugliness has little place in the consulting room, there is still room for beauty in the dictionary sense of calling forth admiration. The intricacy and economy of human anatomy, both in health and in sickness, is often beautiful. And if imagining the harmony beneath the skin can be beautiful, medical images such as ultrasound scans are too. Think of those grainy, chiaroscuro images given pride of place on the mantelpiece or on the first page of a baby's album. X-ray images have a particular ethereal beauty to them, whatever part of the body they represent. Contemplating them as a reminder not just of the skeleton and our mortality, but a way of transforming perspective and imagining the body anew. Sometimes they're like portraits, but they can also resemble landscape paintings with contours, horizons and cloudscapes. There are parallels in nomenclature. In emergency departments I've often ordered skyline views of the knee or panoramic views of the jawbone. That those images have clinical importance, useful in diagnosis and treatment, makes them more rather than less beautiful. The sculptor Rodin said that there was no ugliness in art if that art offered some insight of truth. And the same could be said for the practice of medicine and the images that it creates. Medically speaking, the body is rarely ugly, and images of it can have an aesthetic that approaches art, even if those images are of the rectum. Douglas Duletto was a thin, middle-aged man who wore horn-rimmed spectacles and a starched white shirt. He had neat, greying hair, parted in the centre, and sat primly on the emergency room gurney, as if waiting patiently for the second half of a chamber music recital. He was wearing a thin hospital gown over his shirt, and had neatly rolled up his corduroy trousers and placed them to one side of the gurney. I picked up a clipboard from a holder on the cubicle wall and glanced down at the sheet. Foreign body rectum, it said. I'm mortified to be here, he said, flushing suddenly, but I can't get it out. What's it? I asked him. A bottle, he replied. I've been trying to get it out all evening. A bottle of what? I asked him. He flushed an even deeper scarlet like a senator snapped at a strip club. Ketchup, he said. I asked him to lie on his left side with his knees drawn up to his chest. I've left my dignity at the door anyway, he said, then pushed a gloved finger into his rectum. Just bear down, I said. Squeeze as if you're trying to open your bowels. At the tip of my finger, as far in as I could push, 
I could feel an edge of hard glass, too deep to get a finger on either side of it. I inserted a clear plastic tube, a proctoscope, and shone in a light. At the clear plastic edges of the instrument I could see healthy pink walls of rectum, flecked with yellow sluglets of faeces, and at the centre, just at the limit of my view, there was a glint of glass. It's going to be tricky, I'm afraid. It's quite far in. He sank forward, head in his hands, and his shoulders began to shake. At the ward sluice, the area where all the urine and faeces are disposed of, I found a commode, and from the surgical ward some ointment, ordinarily used in the treatment of tears in the anal skin. The ointment relaxes the sphincter, which can allow tears to heal, but I wondered if it would also allow the bottle to pass. I applied the ointment and asked him to sit on the commode. After it strained a few times, I got him back up on the couch and tried for the bottle again. This time, I thought I had it, when at the last minute it slipped away deeper into the swampy anatomy of the abdomen. I swore under my breath, but he heard me. What's wrong? He asked me, nervously. Nothing, I told him, but we're going to have to get an x-ray. At that time, x-rays were still produced on large acetate films, and once Mr. Doletto was back in the cubicle, I took the envelope containing the film back to the doctor's room and put it up on a light box. It gathered quite a crowd. The bowl of the pelvis stood in the foreground, shaped like the two flanks of a valley, beneath vague, gaseous bowel shadows, a Turner-like sky. And rising up through the middle was an incongruous form, a skyscraper dropped into a pastoral scene. It was the crisp, instantly recognisable outline of a branded bottle of ketchup. It lay along part of the rectum and into the sigmoid colon, with the shoulders of the bottle and its metal lid tapered like an arrowhead pointing deeper into the guts. I'm sorry, I said when I got back to the cubicle. I'm going to have to refer you to the surgeons. There's no way I'm going to be able to get that thing out on my own. I think that's a good point for us to, uh, to pause that story. <laughs> um, just one final question, Gavin, to, to wrap us up. You end up at the foot in this book, and you, you sort of posit this idea that it's actually the foot that makes us human above other parts of our anatomy. Tell us what you mean by that. When I was learning anatomy, there was a, a question that the professor would sometimes put to us. He would say, what's more unique in terms of the human anatomy, the hand or the foot? And everybody would assume it was the hand. The hand would show opposable thumbs. And actually, that's not true. You know, the, the differences of our thumbs to make them opposable are very minimal compared to those of apes. But um, actually, our feet are remarkably unique. In the chapter on the foot, I explore these uh, wonderful footprints that were found in the 70s by, by Leakey in Tanzania, which three million-year-old footprints in volcanic ash and the finding of those footprints, which are almost identical to our own modern human ones, show that actually we began, our ancestors began to stand upright before our brains developed. And so it was the development of feet that could fully bear our weight and walk with the kind of stride that we now have, which freed our hands to manipulate tools in the world in a way. And so the development of our feet, those three arches that are within our feet that support the weight of the body, were probably the, one of the clinching factors in really freeing humanity up to make the great forward leaps in evolution that we subsequently made. So I've been talking to Gavin Francis, we've been talking about his book Adventures in Human Being, which is out now from Profile Books. Um, Gavin, thank you very much for coming in and telling me about it. Thank you, Neil, and I look forward to chatting to you again sometime.
You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunched website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.